It's important that we're going back to Genesis because it shows that God has always been interacting with people by grace. It wasn't until, it's not as if it was until Jesus came that finally grace came. No, God has always been full of grace and mercy. And it's true, in Jesus we receive grace upon grace. It's just kindness upon kindness, goodness upon goodness. But this has always been God's character, how he interacts with people. So today, we're going to look at a story that highlights, in a way, the scandal of grace. How grace is a bit shocking and surprising to us if we really see how God works. It should shock us a little bit, raise up some questions. So again, here, Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 22. I have this on slides for you. I'm going to read this for us here this morning. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it, the Lord stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. When Jacob woke up from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you Tenth. So we say here at King's Cross to highlight how this is this word is different than every word we say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You probably notice we have jumped right into the middle of a story here in Genesis 28. Who is Jacob? Why is he going to this place, Haran? Why is God blessing him in this way? So we need to take a couple steps backwards to look at the stories that precede this to understand what is happening here. The first week, you know, we talked about how God called Abraham to leave the land he had grown up with, grown up in, the family he had grown up with, and to follow him to a new country. And God blesses Abraham, and he says, I will make you a great nation, and through you, all the peoples on earth will be blessed. This is is amazing. This is an unbelievably broad 
hope-filled promise that God gives Abraham. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. There's one challenge that we saw, however, is Abraham and his wife Sarah are hoping for children. They do not have any. And they're already in their old age and past their childbearing years. Yet God says somehow he's going to make him a great nation. And after 25 years of waiting, God does keep his promise. And he gives him a son named Isaac, the son of the promise. We heard last week from Dawson how God then calls Abraham to send his most faithful servant back up to his family region in Haran to find a wife for his son, Isaac. He doesn't want him marrying someone from the people around him because of cultural and religious differences. He wants someone from his family background. We saw how God faithfully leads this servant directly to Abraham's extended family, and he finds this beautiful wife named Rebekah. So we've seen how grace is not about our ability, it's about God's ability. We've seen that grace is not about our faithfulness, it's about God's faithfulness. But now here we've come to a place where Isaac and his wife Rebekah, they have twin boys. And when they are born, the, the first to come out is Harry with red hair all over his body. So they named him Esau, which means Harry. The second, I know, great names back in the day, right? The second born was named Jacob, and he comes out grasping at his brother's heel. And so they name him Jacob, which means heel grabber. This is not exactly a compliment in this day because heel grabber was really an idiom or an expression for someone who's a deceiver. You're a liar. You trip people up. So he is called Jacob the deceiver. And amazingly, he will live up to his name. In this day, if you had more than one son, you would split up your inheritance among them. So you give a portion to each one of your sons, but your eldest son got a double portion. This second portion added to his first was called his birthright. He got twice as much as every other son. It was his birthright. More than that, there would be often blessings given from a father to his children. And the best blessing was always given to the oldest son. So Esau, being the firstborn, he will get the birthright and he will get the blessing. However, Jacob, the deceiver, will snatch both of them away. We see later as they grow up, it says that Esau, he loves being out in the open country. He loves hunting, being out in the wild. And Jacob's a lot more content watching Netflix at home, it says. He's just great being among the tents with family. He doesn't like going out. He just stays back among the tents. And it says, one day Esau went out and was hunting, was out for a long time. And he came back and found his brother Jacob cooking a stew. It smelled wonderful to Esau, and apparently he had been very unsuccessful in his hunting because he comes back famished. He is deeply hungry, and he asks his brother for some of this soup. Jacob sees his opportunity, and he says, I'll give you some soup, but first sell me your birthright. So Jacob, in a moment of his brother's weakness 
and need and desperation is taking advantage of this opportunity to manipulate him into giving him half the double portion of his inheritance that he is expected to receive. And Esau, he says, look, I'm, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright to me? I'll sell it to you. Jacob, just, just take his word for it. He says, you must swear to me that you're going to give me your birthright. And Esau swears, and Jacob finally gives him a bowl of this soup in exchange for Esau's entire birthright. Jacob, the liar, the cheat, the manipulator, the deceiver, gets his brother's birthright for a bowl of soup. So there's one, birthright down, now for the blessing. We hear later, time goes by, and Isaac, now far into his old age, is struggling with blindness. And he knows he's nearing the end of his life, so he calls his eldest firstborn son, Esau, to him. And he says, Esau, I want you to go out into the wild as you normally do. I want you to hunt for some game. Bring something back. Cook a meal for me because I love it when you find me this fresh game. Bring me a a meal and then I will bless you. Finally, I will give you this blessing. So Esau heads out into the country to obey his father and find some game. However, Isaac's wife, Rebekah, overhears this conversation. And because she favors Jacob more than Esau, she brings Jacob and says, look, your father is about to bless Esau. This is what you need to do. You need to go get two young goats and bring them to me and I will prepare a meal just as your father Isaac loves it. But Jacob, he's not convinced. He's like, you, you want me to steal this blessing? But, but if my father touches me, he's going to realize I'm Jacob, and instead of getting a blessing, he's going to give me a curse. So Rebecca says, okay, but take goat hair and put it on your hands so that you feel like your hairy brother Esau. More than that, grab some of his clothing and put it on so that you smell like him too. So with the food prepared, and Jacob in his fresh disguise, he goes into his father, Isaac, and he says, Father. And Isaac hears something strange, and he says, Who who is this? And Jacob says, I'm your firstborn son, Esau. But Isaac is not exactly convinced, so he says, Come close to me. I I, want to make sure you really are my son, Esau. And he starts to feel his hands, and he notices that they're hairy. And he says, You have the voice of Jacob, but you have the hands of my son, Esau. He says, are you really, are you really Esau? Heartbreakingly, Jacob keeps his lie and says, I am, I am. And Isaac eats the food that had been prepared for him, but he still has this lingering doubt. So he says, come close to me one more time. Come close to me one more time. And as Jacob in his disguise gets close, Isaac catches the scent of Esau's clothing. And this convinces him. He really believes it's Esau in front of him. So he gives this amazing blessing. He he pours out this blessing of God's abundance on him. This blessing that other nations will serve Jacob. He gives this blessing that those who curse him will be cursed. Those who bless him will be blessed. It's the, the best kind of blessing a father could give his son. As soon as Jacob receives this in his disguise, he goes out of the tent. And who comes home just at that moment but Esau? 
He's just found some game and he prepares it. And he comes into his father's tent full of expectation. And he says, hello, father. And Isaac in shock says, who is this? And Esau, he says, I'm your firstborn son, Esau. And when Isaac hears this, he begins to violently tremble, it says. Because who, who is it that just came into my tent? Who is it that I just ate a meal with? Who is it that I just gave a blessing to? For they will surely be blessed. When Esau hears this, it says that he bursts out with a loud, bitter cry. And he begins to beg his father, please bless me also. But Isaac knows what happened. And he says, your brother has deceived me and he has taken your blessing. I gave him all the good blessing that I could give. I have nothing left for you, Esau. And Esau realizes not only has Jacob, his younger brother, stolen his birthright, he's also taken advantage of him and taken his blessing. So it places deep in him a seed of bitterness, and he plans, I will kill my brother as soon as my father passes away. As soon as it's just me and Jacob, I will get my revenge. This is why we read here in chapter 28, verse 10, that Jacob is heading up to Haran. He is fleeing from his brother Esau because Jacob is a lying, deceitful manipulator who is about to reap what he has sowed. This is why he's heading up to Haran to escape and perhaps find refuge among family up there and, yes, maybe even a wife. This is what makes it so shocking then, hear this, that Jacob, the liar, Jacob, the deceiver, Jacob, the manipulator, on his way, he gets a dream and he sees a stairway coming from heaven all the way to earth with the angels of God ascending and descending on this stairway. And he hears God speak to him from heaven. And you might think God is going to rebuke Jacob. Like, Jacob, you need to go home. You need to make amends. You need to give back this birthright. You need to apologize. He, we would expect, would rebuke Jacob, but that's not what happens at all. Instead, God blesses Jacob. God blesses Jacob, the deceiver and the liar. Is this a little shocking to us? And he's not like Isaac. God can't be deceived. He's not blind. He's not unaware of what Jacob has done. Fully knowing Jacob's deceptive heart, God freely blesses him abundantly, saying, I will be with you, and I will watch over you, and I will bring you safely back here. I will make you a great nation. I will give your descendants this land you're sleeping on. It's an abundant blessing that God freely pours out on Jacob. Isn't this just a little bit disturbing? Isn't this just a little bit strange? I mean, just consider this with me. Again, God is blessing Jacob, who is a liar. And every story we know about Jacob to this point in his life highlights his unworthiness. We don't have a single reason to think highly of Jacob that God would be good or just in giving him this kind of blessing. Rather, everything we know about Jacob tells us he does not deserve this. More than that, look at what God says to Jacob. Do you notice the conditions that God places on Jacob for this promise? 
Do you notice any if statements? If you, Jacob, do this, then I will bless you. There are none. God does not place a single condition on Jacob with his blessing. He says, I will do this, period. I will be with you, period. I will protect you. There is no condition on Jacob's past obedience or on his future character or obedience. God just promises. This is startling. Crazily enough, even beyond this, did you notice that Jacob has his conditions for God? God has none for him, but Jacob, he's going to hold off for a little bit. And he says, if you, God, will be with me, you do watch over me. If you give me food and clothing and protect me on my journey, then, then you will be my God. So God, as one writer puts it, he is with Jacob, but Jacob is not yet with the Lord. Maybe let me put the challenge, the scandal of grace this way. Let me frame this question this way. If God is going to freely bless Jacob, right in the midst of his unworthiness, what is going to keep Jacob from continuing in the same kind of manipulative behavior? What's going to keep Jacob from taking advantage of this kind of blessing? Maybe more broadly to you and to I. If God makes people right with himself by grace, freely, by his own character, makes people right with himself, what is to keep us from taking advantage of grace? What's going to keep us from abusing grace? as can so often happen. I want to ask this question because I know there are many people who are turned off to grace for this very reason. People who have seen people in the church or church leaders who have had massive moral failures, yet are allowed to stay in leadership and continue their work because people say, ah, yes, but we all need the grace of God, right? So they make excuses and they allow this person to stay, even though they have done abusive things towards those they are leading. Or again, people see church people who talk about grace, yet their lives do not change. They maybe experience judgment or hypocrisy from church people who are always talking about grace. It's not surprising then that grace becomes attached in many people's minds as something that denies justice. Something that enables abuse. So they'd want to maybe not jump into the world of grace. That's just an enabling mindset. So it makes sense that many people would conclude that we can't really, we can't really be made right with God by grace alone. There must be something from us, otherwise we will abuse it. Do you see this? I want us to pause and to look at this scandalous Nature of grace here this morning. Look at the scandalous nature of grace. And if we are shocked by it, this is good news for us. This is a good sign that we are actually seeing how incredible God's grace is to us. How shockingly free. However, first I need to point out with the scandalous nature, Scripture does share that we can take advantage of grace and abuse it, and Scripture condemns this very clearly. Condemns it very clearly. Here's a verse for us from Romans chapter 2, verse 4. It says this, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. 
Paul's asking if people show contempt or presume upon God's kindness because it's clearly possible for them to do so. It is possible for us to take advantage of God's kindness and stay complacently in ways we should not stay. It is possible for us to presume upon God's favor and think we'll escape his judgment even as our judgment falls on other people. That's why Paul is highlighting, do you presume on his kindness? It is possible to abuse grace, and scripture clearly condemns it. Or again, notice this verse from Luke chapter 9, verse 23, where Jesus says to those following him, he says, this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. If there's a statement to cause us to throw out the thought that we can receive God and then do whatever we would like, this statement would be one to cure us of that misconception. Here's a thought to lead us to see if I want to be received by God, if I know him, it cannot allow me to stay in my same old dead ways. There must be change. Clearly, this statement draws that out. It shows that, yes, grace is free to us, but it also costs us everything. Let me be clear here this morning. We do not earn grace. I'll say it again. We do not earn grace. However, grace does cost us everything. What do I mean? We receive it freely, but it also costs us everything. Imagine with me that there's a young man who is about to propose to a young woman he loves. So, as young men will do, they go out and they buy the nicest, biggest diamond ring they can possibly afford, right? And this young man is going to put together the most elaborate surprise way of asking this young woman he loves to spend the rest of her life with him. That he wants to give her his very heart and life and this ring. So he surprises her, gets down on one knee and says, will you marry me? I have this ring and my heart and my life that I freely offer you. No young man in this moment down on one knee says, I will give you this ring for 72 easy payments of $99 that over the next six years you can repay. Like if you want a quick rejection, that is the best way, right? There's no way he's offering this ring and himself and then outlining how she can repay him. That's not how it works. He's down on one knee freely offering her this ring. Amen? Freely offering her his heart and his life. They cost her nothing. It comes by grace. It costs her nothing. There is no repayment plan. There is no expectation for her to sew back in some monthly payment. That's ridiculous. It's grace, grace, grace. All of it free to her. At the same time, though, it will cost her everything. Because he's offering his very self. To really receive this, she must also give her very self. That she's forsaking every other love that she's leaving behind every other man that might be in her life, and she is promising the rest of her life to be solely with this one partner. It costs her nothing, yet at the same time, it costs her everything. Do you see this? There are few writers that have made this more clear for us 
than a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote in a book called Discipleship about the difference between cheap grace that we abuse and costly grace that is biblical. I'm just going to warn you, this is a very long quote, but is very worthwhile. So just follow this along with me here on these slides. It says this, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution or saying you are forgiven without personal confession. It says cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace, though, is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye for which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. He keeps going. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs the God Cost God the life of his son. Ye were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. So yes, there is grace upon grace. But we are not meant to abuse it, but to see that God gave his very self for us. We are not earning grace. We are not earning grace. It is freely given to us, but it requires this right response of us also giving our very self. Giving our very self. Costly grace. However, one more thing I want to touch on here. that There's a confusion that often comes up in this. That seeing that we can abuse grace often leads people to think, why not pair grace with our own good works and effort, before we're received by God, to make sure we don't abuse it. Since people tend to take advantage of this kindness from God, how about we can't be received by God until we have done enough to make sure we are truly worthy of it, before God receives us. So they want to say, pair this with our good works, do more on our own effort, before God receives us, to make sure we have a guardrail up so that we don't abuse grace. Hear me though, this thought is disastrous for our hearts. If we think there is something that we must do before God truly meets us with his grace, that we must earn or do before God comes to us, it makes it conditional, makes us built on us, will sow in fear and ruin us. Let me tell you this little mini parable, maybe to bring out this idea more, how grace comes. 
actually this idea first before we get to this. The, the beauty of grace, the beauty of grace here, is not that we must qualify for it, but that it qualifies us. The beauty of grace is not that we have to transform in order for it to come to us, but that grace comes and transforms us. The goodness of grace is not that we need to come to life in order to be worthy of it, but grace comes freely to us and brings us to life. This is the beauty of it. It qualifies us. It's not that we must qualify for it. I'll share this story, this mini parable. Imagine with me that there are two brothers, not Jacob and Esau this time, but just imagine with me there are twins. And both of them are growing up in an abusive home where they are yelled at, where they're spoken to harshly, where they're looked down on, where they're neglected. And these two boys are not receiving affirmation, but instead rejection and neglect. And as they receive no love, they begin to act out in order to receive attention more and more and more. They begin to learn how to relish cruelty. They learn how to speak down to other people even as they have been spoken down to. They're full of anger. They're full of mischief and lying and deceit. And eventually these two boys who've been living so recklessly are taken out of this home. And they're both placed in two different homes. And hear me, the first boy, he's placed in a home with a family. And they say to this crazy young son, they say, look, if you will change the way you are living, if you will clean up your act and you'll stop being so full of cruelty, if you'll stop speaking down to other people, if you'll change the way you are living, then maybe we will make you a part of our family. If you live well enough and meet our standard, then maybe we will accept you. The second son is placed in a family that immediately works to adopt him. And as soon as that gavel falls from the judge and that son is now legally their own, they look him in the eye and they say to him, no matter what you do, you will always be our beloved son. No matter what kind of rebellion, no matter how you behave, you will always be our son. No matter what. This doesn't mean there won't be consequences for your action. It doesn't mean we won't discipline you or you don't need to leave behind old areas you used to live and how you used to behave. But no matter what, we're going to be faithful to you and with you, and you now are our son. As you think about these two children, which one is more likely to truly change? Which one is truly likely to have transformation come out of their life? The one who is given a standard of obedience in order to be accepted? Or the one who's given a standard of obedience because they already are accepted? Which one's truly going to transform someone? We think that it's fear of rejection that most motivates people into change. It's true, it's deeply motivating, but it will not transform people. It's when we realize that we are truly secure in the love of another. It's when we truly realize how deep someone's affection is for us that we are freed. This is why John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That we're meant to be sitting in a place of marvel and awe at God's free kindness to us. 
of him saying, look, no matter what happens in your life, I'm going to continue to be faithful to you. I'm making you my own freely by grace. And when this really comes into our hearts, it transforms us. It changes us like nothing else can. The beauty of grace is not that we must qualify for it, but that it qualifies us. This is where freedom, life, joy is found. Seeing God's free kindness to you and to me. I'm going to invite the band back up for us to sing a little bit more in this. But I want to touch on one part of this story here with Jacob as they do so. So the band can come back up here. Even as you think about grace and how costly it is, how do we really receive this? Who made this payment that we can receive such a marvelous gift? There's a hint here in the story from Jacob in chapter 28 says that as he's having this dream, he sees a stairway going all the way from heaven down to earth with the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And this is the connection from heaven to earth. What does this mean, though? Why is Jacob having this vision? It's interesting that centuries and centuries later, when Jesus is first having disciples come to him, he has one disciple come named Nathaniel, who's shocked at Jesus' awareness of his life. And Jesus says, you will see even greater things than these. And then to highlight the greatest thing that Nathaniel or any other disciple could see, Jesus says this in John chapter 1, verse 51. He says this, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So Jesus says the greatest sight anyone could ever see, what's really something worth marveling at, is this vision of Jacob in chapter 28. It's to truly see this stairway from heaven down to earth. But do you notice what Jesus puts in place of this stairway? It says the angels of God ascending and descending on, you'd expect him to say, the stairway. But he says, the son of man. Jesus' term for himself. In other words, Jesus is saying, He is the true stairway from heaven to earth. He is the true way that grace is connected to our lives. Jesus is saying that he's the one who's come from the heights of heaven down into the depths of earth where we are in our sin to rescue us. He is the bridge to us in our deep and desperate need. He's showing in the story of Jacob that it's not about us building some bridge or stairway up to heaven. It is about God and what he has done to come to us in the person of Jesus. It's Jesus and him crucified. That's the way we receive this free gift. He's the one that paid the cost. He's the true bridge. He's the true stairway. So let your heart take in here this morning. I don't have to earn your favor, God. That is what Jesus has done for me that I come to you freely to receive this and in response offer you my life. So in this, would you all pray with me here?